All right, uh, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 55 this morning. Um, we'll get there in a second, so if you want to open your Bibles, if you got the regular print version uh, that we handed you, it's page 357. If you got the large print, uh, you can see easier, but I'm not going to tell you the page. So um, am I going to have to give out two page numbers every Sunday? We'll have to figure this out. This is new problems, but good problems. Okay. Um, if you've been with us consistently, then you know we've been studying through the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus is a story of God producing a people. And a few weeks ago, we came to a place in the history where God gives his people plans for this tent that he wants to build in order that he may dwell among them. And then he gives very specific um, reasoning for why he wants the tent to be built. He says, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, maybe you've heard of it before, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. Okay, so he builds this tent for the people as a symbol of him dwelling among the people. And he said, the reason I'm dwelling among you is so I can meet with you and speak to you. So I think we're all on the same page. We feel pretty confident that meeting with his people and speaking to his people is something God continues to desire to do. It's not like that was an Old Testament thing. He's like, ah, he's just going to let you figure it out now. Like, no, he's going to continue to meet with and speak to you as you try to be his people and live out uh, his mission for your life on the earth. So fast forward, we read through uh, the Bible and we got to the story of Jesus. And Jesus, at this point in time, walks into the temple, which kind of functionally was very similar or exactly the same as the tabernacle. And he starts, he's infuriated with what's going on there. He's throwing over temp, uh, tables, not temples. He's throwing over tables. He pours out all the money. He makes a whip, which is pretty cool. And then starts like uh, flogging. Well, I don't know if he's flogging anything. It doesn't say, but my imagination is pretty Braveheart-ish, okay? So he's like driving the animals out of the temple courts. And he says, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And in fact, he says, it is written, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And so if you're sitting there and you're a Jewish boy or girl and you knew the scriptures and you heard him say, it is written, and the rest of that quote, you'd be like, wait, I've heard that before. I know where that is. And so we've been studying it, the passages in Isaiah chapter 55 and 56. It's a whole passage where God describes what should be happening at his house in the place where he meets with and speaks to his people. These are the kinds of things that should be happening. So we started studying through that last week. And this is the part of the message where usually I spend a while uh, kind of catching everybody up to speed and, and talking through like what we did last week. Because my heart behind that is I really don't want anyone to feel left out. Like if you're visiting our church for the first time, I don't really, oh, I'm, in, I'm not part of the in club, right? I don't know what happened last week. I'm just visiting. I don't ever want that to happen. You're welcome here. I'm glad you're here. I want you to feel like you're a part. But this morning, which is a little odd for me, I'm not going to talk about last week at all. It was awesome. You should have been here. You missed it. I'm sorry. Um, this week, we're just going to jump in to verse 10. Okay, here we go. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and spout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, 
so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Okay, so we're in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10, and God is speaking here about the kinds of things that he wants to happen in the place where he is meeting with and speaking to his people. And this is interesting here because God here describes his word and he compares it to rain and snow and specifically not just rain and snow all the time. You're like, I hate snow. That's not very like some of you are like the snowbird people that are like really angry that there's ice on the sidewalk. I personally love the cold weather, but that's not what he's comparing it to to right now. He's comparing it to the function of rain and snow in that they bring water to the earth that produces life. Okay? So it's, this, it's not just all rain and snow is like the word of God. He's saying the function of rain and snow, the precipitation part of the equation that produces life on the earth, that's what he's comparing his word to. Now, if you were a scientific person, scientists will tell you that the thing that separates the planet Earth from every other planet uh, uh, that exists is water, right? That's what makes possible the existence of life on the Earth. The presence of water is not only what produces life on the Earth, all living organisms are predominantly water. I was like Googling it. You know, you get down the rabbit hole on Google and stuff, and it's like, everything is water. Like, our bodies are like 80% water. Like, it's crazy. So, literally everything that is alive on earth is alive because of the presence of water. And that's exactly what God just compared his word to. You see that picture? Here, he compares his word to the thing that sustains all life on earth. And earlier in the passage, at the beginning of chapter 55, he talked about those who thirsted, right? That those who are thirsty would come to him, that their souls may live. The connection to water and the life-giving nature of the word of God is undeniable here. Like, the word of God is the thing that sustains life. Now, you may not think about this as much. You, you probably do, but uh, because this is what I do as a pastor, because I get up here and talk uh, most Sundays, I think about this a lot. Uh, when it comes to church and what we do here on a Sunday and how we spend our time, there's actually a lot of ways we could go. We, we could spend our time doing a lot of things, and lots of churches do a lot of different things with their time on Sunday morning. There's a lot of choices we could make. When we decide how we're going to spend this time and what we're going to talk about and, and all, I mean, there's a million different variables that we could do. And you guys have probably been to churches, and they do different things, right? They talk about popular movies or they talk about songs or, or, you know, lots of the talk is quotes from really smart people. And, you know, we could do all that stuff and all those things could be helpful in some ways and at some times, but there is no certainty that any of those things will actually bring life. Like we spend a lot of, this person says this, and this person says that, a quote from this person. I watched a movie the other day, and it reminded me of this, and how this happens, and I was on social media, and I saw a picture, and it, it reminded me of this. We could do all that, but there is no promise that that will bring life. There is no promise like the promise of the word of God doing the thing for which God sent it out. And as a pastor, I'm very aware that some of you are walking into the hardest moments of your life this week. 
Some of you are in marriages that are in dead ends or struggling. Some of you have children that you are worried sick over and are praying for. Some of you are making terrible choices with your life and are going to be experiencing the consequences of those choices. Some of you are trying just to figure out where you fit in the world and if your life means anything. And, and I could tell you that it would bum me out so bad if you walked into that uncertainty this week and the last thing you heard me talk about was something that didn't bring you life. I've, I've sat with people in those really difficult moments. I, I've walked through lots of that. It's just kind of the nature of the thing I get to do. It's a huge blessing. But I would hate for you to walk into the hardest thing you've ever walked into this week and the last thing I told you was about some movie I saw or some quote from a smart guy. The thing you need when you walk out those doors to face what is in front of you in this fallen world that we live in is the word of God because the word of God is the one thing that promises to bring life. I might ruffle your feathers right now. But there is death and tragedy and conflict in this world. And I, I don't know if you know this, but politics don't produce life. The word of God produces life. Entertainment does not produce life. Entertainment does not give hope to the hurting soul. The word of God gives hope to the hurting soul. When life doesn't make sense to you and you are struggling to keep your head up, you don't need a bunch of quotes from smart people. You need the spirit of God revealed through the word of God. And I'm convinced of this as anything in this world, that the word of God is our only hope. Here in describing what it looks like when he meets with his people, God tells us very specifically that it's his word that brings life. Now, the thing about rain and snow and precipitation and water is they produce life, but it's gotta be consistent. Like, where's my farmers at? You just go dump water in the spring, be like, come back in the fall and be like, hey, it's there. Like, there's an amount of water that is directly proportional to the amount of life that needs to be produced, right? And if one time water ain't gonna cut it, it's gotta be consistent for the results you want. It's gotta happen if it's gonna produce fruit. And not only that, but sometimes you water it and it doesn't go as fast as you wanted it to. Sometimes water is poured on the thing. Life is happening. It's beneath the surface. You can't see it. It's not on your time schedule, which is really frustrating. I know for us as Americans, we're all impatient and control freaks. But the promise of the passage is not that you will see the results when you want to see them. The promise of the passage is not that every single time you encounter the word of God, that it will do all that it's supposed to do. The promise is that no matter how long it takes or how little you think is happening, life is being produced and God is doing what he desires to do in that moment. Okay, keep moving. We're into chapter 56, verse one. Same passage. 
I know the chapter breaks kind of throw you off here, but he doesn't change here. For thus says the Lord, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses the things that please me and holds fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Okay, so the two people described at this moment in the passage are outsiders, foreigners and eunuchs, okay? Both of those people groups are considered outsiders in the world in which this is written. Both of those peoples are considered outsiders not only by other people, like the culture at large, be like, yeah, they're not one of us, but they also would consider themselves outsiders. Uh, yeah, we're not normal. We're some other group of people. We're, they're, they're the in crowd. We're the out crowd. Okay? And look at what the foreigner says. Now, okay, let me just say this real quick. Uh, if you got your kids in here, we have a children's ministry. It's great, and we warned you. Okay? The foreigner's pretty easy to understand. Eunuch, here we go. Right? If you need to stop your ears, uh, there were some some group of people called eunuchs, and what would happen, like if you had a dude that was a servant for a king, uh, the king was a little worried about the queen, right? So the eunuch would be a servant who was castrated in order to perform service in the temple, and then the king didn't have to worry about it with the queen, if you, you catch what I'm putting down, okay? So... <laughs> That was a eunuch, someone who gave up this sexual aspect and reproductive aspect and this nature of legacy, right? All that was given up for service in their position, okay? You're welcome for the ride home for those of you who kept your kids in here, okay? <laughs> Just trying to help, okay? So the foreigner here says to himself, okay? The Lord will surely separate me from his people. So you're a foreigner. You're from somewhere else. You didn't grow up with this culture, these customs, this people, these relationships. And he's saying to himself, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Now, some of you are like, ah, that's not me. I'm not a foreigner. I'm an insider. I've been in America. I get it. I'm a group of people. But this is something that people say to themselves all the time. And it may not be these exact words, but here's what it sounds like when I hear it from people in our congregation. Yeah, God's good to them, but probably not me. God will do that for them, probably not me. I'm probably the broken one. I'm probably the messed up one. I'm the outsider. Like, I believe that God can do that for somebody somewhere. Do I think he's going to do it for me? No. That's the exact person that God's calling to in this passage. It's the exact person that God is calling to himself. The foreigner is thinking to themselves, there is a people who get the good life. There is a people God loves. There are people who receive compassion and abundant pardon, like we talked about last week, but it's not me. God is not going to treat me like one of his people. That's what the foreigner thinks to himself. And then the eunuch, at the end of verse three, eunuchs were people, like I said, who had given up this uh, idea of having kids and having a legacy and, and having a name in the earth. This was a big deal in those days, right? Those, those are the, that's the, that was one of the, I'll give you this example. One time I was a ski instructor in Telluride and uh, I did that for 10 years. Telluride's this like most expensive ski area in the country, right? It's like, 
anyway, it, lots, of, lots of very wealthy people would come, and these Jewish people from New York would lots of times spend their Christmas break in Telluride, and their kids would be in ski school, and I'd be teaching their kids how to ski. And I got on the chairlift with a six-year-old kid that was in my class, a little Jewish boy, cutest kid ever. And I was like, hey, man, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, I want to have sons. I was like, that's amazing, right? It was a huge deal in that Jewish culture, like, I wanna grow up and have sons. I was like, you're six, man, like astronaut, fireman, no, I wanna have sons. It's like, it's a big deal, even today, right? Like the legacy idea that having a name, right, like producing a generation beyond that your family name wouldn't die out, and Unix had given all of that up. They, they had, they not only did they not have the hope for that now, they never would. There was no possibility in the future that they were gonna get that back. That wasn't coming back, that was something that was gone forever. And what does God say to the eunuch? I'm gonna bring you into my house and I'm gonna give you a name. So to the foreigners and the eunuchs, the people who consider themselves outsiders, who think there's no hope for me, I'm not like the insiders, I'm not gonna have a legacy, I'm not gonna have a name, God says, no, no, you, you who think you have no hope, I'm calling you in. Come to me if you think you're an outsider. Come to me if you think you're a foreigner. Come to me if you think I won't work on your behalf. Come to me if you think I will work for other people but won't do it for you. So this is what happens when God dwells with man and people meet with God and God speaks and what Jesus said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. When prayer is taking place, God welcomes the outsiders. That's, that's what should be happening in the place where God meets his people. Okay, last one. Now we're finally to the thing that Jesus quoted. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, verse six, and minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, verse seven, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. If you've ever, if you've been with us through the study of Exodus, your mind alarm should be going off, right? We've talked about this idea of pictures that the Bible kind of recycles. So when he says something, he does so in a way that reminds you of another thing that's already been talked about. And we talked about in the book of Exodus, this idea of a bond servant. A bond servant was someone who chose to be a servant to their master because he said to himself, like, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my kids, my master's a good master, I choose to serve this person, and they would drive a nail or an awl through their ear as a sign that they were a bond servant forever, right? Look at what it says in verse six, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, the outsiders who say, I love my master, right? To minister to him, that word just means to serve him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. The, the mind alarm should be going off like, we just read that, that's a bond servant. That's exactly what it is. And then he says, everyone who keeps the Sabbath that does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. What's happening in our study of Exodus right now? Moses is up on the mountain. 
right? This is exactly what, like, the connections between these two are very clear, right? Moses is up on the mountain, hearing from God, getting the plans for the tabernacle. Keep going, verse seven. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. That's very tabernacle-ish language, right? That's all happening. We're reading in Exodus, for my house should be called a house of prayer for some people. Is that what it says? Don't look at me, look at your Bible. A few people. My house shall be a house of prayer for the good people. My house shall be a house of prayer for those who read the New King James Version. (laughs) My house shall be a house of prayer for Republicans. Oh, it doesn't say any of that. God produced a people so he could dwell among them, so he could meet with them, so he could speak to them. And the Bible calls that place a house of prayer. So let's, let's finish this morning. Let's sing a song and go home and think about how awesome prayer is. There are churches that'll do that. Prayer's awesome, guys. Let's finish and go home. Is that what we should do right now? Or should we actually spend some time praying? Whoa, one person in the back. We're getting Pentecostal back here. I'm getting feedback. I don't know what to do with it. Forget that. Let's let's actually pray. Let's meet with God. Look at what we just read happens when people meet with God. There's a deep thirst being met. The outsiders are being called in. Souls are called to life. There's repentance for those who are laboring for that which does not satisfy. There's a hope being given, a future being given. Guilty are being abundantly pardoned. Those who confess are set on a new path. People are making commitments to serve the God of the Bible. There's compassion and joy and sacrifice and generosity, holiness and love the name of Yahweh. Why don't we do some of that? Why would we spend our time doing anything else? One more thing. I want to finish here because I think it's easy to skip over. My house shall be a house of prayer for all people. Can you underline that in your Bible or our Bible? You could take it home if you don't have one. All people. We live in a culture, and I think this is really important, so if you haven't been paying attention, just pay attention for this next five minutes. (laughs) In our culture, we have been taught to think that the most important things in life are the things that not everybody can do, right? So not everybody can be president, that must be really important. And not everybody can make a lot of money, so that must be really important. And not everybody is a great athlete, so that must be really important. And not everybody is good looking, so being beautiful must be really important. And the problem is, if you believe that, then the flip side of that, the other side of that coin is that if everybody can do it, then it must not be that important. If literally everybody can do something, then our culture doesn't value it. But in the kingdom of God, he turns everything upside down. It's an upside down kingdom. He says the first shall be last and last shall be first. He says if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. He says peace comes not through control, but through surrender. He says if you want to be great, choose to be a servant. 
This is the upside down kingdom of God. And here in this place where God desires to meet with and speak to his people, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So if God is calling all the people to himself, then it has to follow that the important things in life, the important things in God's kingdom have to be the things that literally every single person can do. God's not saying, hey, there's a few of you who can meet with me because you can do these really high-level things, and the rest of you, eh, better luck next time. That's not what he says. He says, I want to meet with and speak to all people. So we live in a world that tells us if everybody can do it, it's probably not that important, but the truth of God's kingdom is that if only some people can do it, then it's probably not that important. If the thing you can do better than everybody else isn't available to everybody, then it's probably not that important. If you want to find the important things in life, find the things that literally everybody can do. For example, look at the things we just covered in this passage. What is God calling people to do? Come to me. Be thirsty. How many of you are incapable of being thirsty? Nobody, everybody could do that, right? Freely receive, he says. Delight in. Is it, everybody can delight in something. Literally everybody, unless you're a teenager. I don't know, when you get to like that 14 to 17 thing, it's like super cool to not be delighted in anything. How you doing, man? Fine. Does it get any better than that? No. Like if you were super excited about something, how would you express that? Like this. Okay, cool. Great. And I'm not judging you, man. I was there, right? I was a teenager that wasn't excited about anything for eight years of my life, and that's eight years I'll never get back. But anyway, listen to the Lord. Everybody can do that. Seek the Lord. Everybody can do that. Be joyful. Literally everybody on the planet can do that. And pray. There's not one person who's alive who can't pray. Literally every single person on earth can do every one of those things. And our culture tells us if everyone can do it, it's not valuable, so I shouldn't waste my time. And God seems to say, I'm going to change the world by making prayer and hearing my voice and meeting with me a thing that literally every single person on the planet can do, the defining activity of my people. You might think because everyone can pray, it's not that important. But God would tell you that because everybody can pray, it's the most important thing you can do. So we're going to pray. Worship team, you can come on up. And by pray, I don't mean just ask God for stuff. I mean the stuff we just read. To listen to God, to receive from God, to delight in God. If you didn't come last week, read through Isaiah chapter 55 and 56, the first seven verses of chapter 56, right? There's repentance taking place. There's acknowledgement of thirst. There's forsaking your ways and your thoughts, right? Delighting in God, reflecting on God's word, receiving compassion and abundant pardon from God, repenting of wickedness, turning back to God, committing ourselves to serve God. All of those things are what God desires to do in his house of prayer. And so we're going to make some time in this service while there's some music being played. A, a couple weeks ago or months ago, I, I called it spiritual white noise. Uh, 
That was probably like not the greatest choice of language, okay? I don't believe that worship music is all spiritual white noise, like it doesn't make sense, but I am trying to convey the idea that what is important in this time right now is not necessarily that you like the music being played or that you're singing along with the words that are being said or that you're vibing with the music. What is important that you're meeting with God. So if in that respect, the music is just kind of background to you meeting with God, that's what I want to take place. The important thing this morning is not that you have a beautiful voice or that you're on key or that you know the words or you, the, the important thing is that the people of God hear from and meet with God. Amen. Let's pray.